Let us turn once more this evening to 2 Peter, chapter 2, reading verses 4 through 10, and then we return to the book of Genesis, reading Genesis chapter 19, the whole of the chapter. For the sake of any who were not here this morning, we began just a short two-part series titled, A Man Called Lot. And we considered this morning from Genesis 11:27 through 15:6 how Lot learned about the gospel. We come tonight to how he embraced the gospel. So first of all, 2 Peter 2, 4 through 10, and then we turn to the end of the section that we'll consider this evening, Genesis 19:1 through 38. Let us hear God's word. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. And then Genesis 19, verse 1 and following. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, no, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man, surrounded the house, and they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let them bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men. For they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn and he has become the judge. 
Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of the place. For we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up! Get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, and the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, O no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight. And you have shown me great kindness in saving my life, but I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, the city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all its inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife Behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow throw when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, 
And the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son, called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. The Lord bless this reading of his holy word. Our brother will now lead us in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the word, the Bible that you give us. We read a passage here about Lot and the sins that he has committed and you wonder how he can be declared righteous. We ask that you'll be with Dr. Trumper as he explains this portion of Scripture to us. We ask this in your name alone. Amen. 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 Well, we come this evening then to the remaining chapters in which Lot is found in the book of Genesis, the narrative that we believe Moses to have written. And we are considering his life, and in particular, as we saw this morning, we are considering the conundrum, the tension between Peter's inspired record of Lot, in which he describes him three times as righteous, and the narrative, as we find it in the book of Genesis, which seems to give a very different picture. And the point I made in general at the outset of the message this morning, for our help, in seeking to understand the Scriptures for ourselves, is that Scripture is its own interpreter. You'll be hearing a lot about the Reformation this year, and this was one of the great principles that was brought to light at the time of the Reformation, or at least brought back, that it is Scripture that interprets Scripture, not the Pope who interprets Scripture, not the Church that interprets Scripture. Scripture is its own interpreter. But when we come then to two such diverse passages as uh, 2 Peter 2 on the one hand and Genesis 11 through 19 on the other, we wonder where to begin. And the point that was made this morning is that we begin with the more straightforward passage and interpret the difficult passages in terms of the easier passage and not the other way around. And I think it's good for us to bear that in mind So that when we come to our own Bible studies and we are flicking through the pages of Scripture and we say to ourselves, but I thought Scripture said this in another place, which seems to contradict what I'm reading here. Then go to the easier one first and interpret the more difficult one in light of the easier. Well, as we have sought then to read Genesis through the inspired lens of the Apostle Peter, we have come to two distinctions. And the first is as we saw this morning, the distinction between learning the gospel and embracing the gospel. As somebody who grew up in the Christian church, I'm very guarded against the possibility that we might think that because we have learned the essentials or the fundamentals of the Christian faith, we are thereby Christians. 
think we need to distinguish between learning the gospel and embracing the gospel. I don't know about you, but I can certainly testify to experiencing those who have never made profession of faith being actually pretty articulate in the gospel, even to the point of defending the gospel in public against those who would deny the gospel. And yet, if you then went on to say to them, but have you embraced the gospel? Well, no, I haven't made profession of faith. I haven't necessarily been baptized or whatever it may be. You see, there is a disjunction there between learning the gospel and embracing the gospel. The gospel is not simply a set of propositions that we tick off mentally and affirm mentally and thereby deduce that I am in a relationship with God. No, we certainly need to learn the gospel and have a clear picture of what the good news of Jesus Christ really is. But if we simply learn the gospel and don't embrace the Christ of the gospel, it will be to our detriment on the day of judgment that we have learned the gospel and yet missed the very invitation on the one hand and command on the other to come to God through Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins and for a relationship with him. And so not to keep you, not to detain you tonight, but we saw that uh, Lot probably learned the gospel in five ways. First of all, from God, from the kindnesses that he received from God, chiefly through Abraham, his servant. And then he learned it from Abraham. God has met with Abraham. He's intervened in his life. And what is Abraham going to do with the grace that he has received? And from very close quarters, Lot observes this man whose life is suffused with grace. And he has the opportunity to see the transformative power of God at work in the life of Abraham. And then in contrast, he learns the gospel from himself, faced with the choice of where to live with his herdsmen, self-first. And so he goes to live in what becomes a war zone here in Sodom, and he is trapped in Sodom, and his uncle Abraham has to come and rescue him. And after the rescue, he has another opportunity, a fourth opportunity to learn the gospel from this mysterious figure we call Melchizedek, who appears from nowhere and goes into history. He seems to vanish into thin air. And also from the fact that his name means king of righteousness, and he comes from the king or the city of peace. And to him, Abraham gives this blessing. It's an Old Testament portrayal designed by God so that his Old Testament people can get some glimpse of the Christ, the greater Melchizedek who's going to come. And so then fifthly, this morning we saw that Lot learned the gospel from this testimony of Abraham, that he believed the Lord and the Lord counted it to him for righteousness. So Lot knows all about this division between learning the gospel and embracing the gospel. And I do want to say to you that if you know the gospel but are yet to embrace the Christ of the gospel, then don't confuse one with the other. You have a wonderful opportunity every Lord's Day as the word of God is preached to embrace the Christ of the gospel. And you have another opportunity today. Let me say to you, 
That life is like a vapor which appears for a little time and then it vanishes away. Don't waste the days. Get alone with God and embrace his son. But there's a second distinction which we've noticed today, and that is the distinction between what we call the imputed righteousness of Christ, which we dealt with at the end of our sermon this morning, that gift of perfect righteousness given to God's people through trusting, resting solely upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Abraham looked forward in faith to the Christ who was to come, and he rested solely upon him. And God reckoned. His faith in the Lord as his righteousness. Now we need to be careful that the Lord was not saying that there is something inherently righteous in Abraham's faith. We talk a lot about faith without talking about Christ. No, the faith that is reckoned as righteousness is the faith that rests upon Christ. And so we are not to deduce then, as we come to Lot this evening... And our belief, on the basis of what Peter says, that he also came to this imputed righteousness, that you can say, well, I have come into this perfect righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ, and now I can live as I want to live. Because what we find in the remaining chapters, Genesis 11 through Genesis 19, is that Lot believed the Lord not only for his justification, but for his sanctification. You see, the imputed righteousness given to us in the gospel, once for all, in justification, is distinguishable from sanctification, but it cannot be isolated from sanctification. All those who are just in the sight of God, whose boldness, whose confidence is in the fact that in Christ I have a perfect righteousness which alone is acceptable to God, can no longer go on living as if sin does not matter. And this was the very issue which Paul had to deal with behind the scenes as he writes the letter to the Romans. And this is why we begun the worship service tonight, the call to worship from Romans 6. You read that whole passage. If God's grace, said the erroneous argument, is magnified by my sin, well, hey, let me go on sinning that grace may abound. And Paul says, no, the person who is united to Christ in his death and in his resurrection and knows the once-for-all blessing of being justified in the sight of God, knowing what it costs the Lord Jesus Christ, that we may be justified then has a radically, radically different view of sin. And this is also what we are dealing with tonight as we come to the remaining chapters. And so these two elements, justification on the one hand, at the heart of which is the imputation or the reckoning or the accounting of Christ's righteousness to my account, must be followed up by sanctification, namely that not only now do I have a new standing, but in Christ I also have a new nature, and so I desire to flee from sin. I pursue righteousness as opposed to a life of sin. Let's be very clear here. I am not saying 
that the impartation of righteousness to me tops up the righteousness that I have already received in Christ. Because if you add to the righteousness of Christ, you are in fact detracting from it. You are saying that it's not enough. Rather, what we are saying is this, and some of you living in an agricultural setting here might appreciate this illustration. You have one bulb, and you plant it in the ground. That bulb is our union with Jesus Christ. But as the bulb grows, you find that there are different shoots coming out of the one bulb. And that is what we have in justification and sanctification. We have one reality, fundamental reality, our union with Christ. But there are what Calvin called these two gifts arising from this one occurrence. Justification on the one hand, sanctification on the other. They are distinct but they cannot be isolated from one another. And we need to bear that in mind then as we come to these chapters. Well, just two points tonight. First of all, Lot believed the Lord for his justification. We pick it up in chapter 15 and verse 7 and move our way very quickly into chapter 19. The battle over Sodom has been completed and Lot has learned at least in theory, the remainder of what he needs to know about the gospel. He's learned the gospel, but he's not embraced it. How do we know that he's not embraced the gospel? Let me give you four reasons here. The first is that he returns to Sodom. It's a remarkable truth that we have here, that for all that has happened to Lot, for all that he has been humbled, for all that he has been rescued by his uncle Abraham, Yet, he returns to live in Sodom. You see, this is part of the evidence of someone who has yet to turn to God from their sins, yet to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. They see the temporal judgments of God around. And they may have some temporary measure of panic that they are on the wrong side of God. But once the temporal judgment has passed, they go back to living in sin. And we have been remembering recently, haven't we, the events of 9-11 in 2001. You read the stories of what happened. The churches in New York were full. And certainly there has been a wonderful transformation in New York in terms of the gospel over recent decades. But are the churches full there today? No, you see, the immediate shock and aftermath of what happened on 9-11 subsided, and the same happens with the hurricanes. This is why we are praying, not simply that people might have a temporary sense of the awesomeness of God, but in that sense of the awesomeness of God, they actually turn from their sins to God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and are radically changed, permanently changed, and not just temporarily changed. Because the temporary judgments of God, if indeed that is what it is, certainly it's an act of of God, is but a limited, localized evidence of the eternal judgment of God that's going to come. And so this is the remarkable thing in Lot's life at this point. He's learned the gospel, but you compare chapter 14, verse 16, where he is rescued from Sodom, and chapter 19 and verse 1. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, And Lot was sitting in the gate 
of Sodom. That's one evidence that he is yet to be justified. The second evidence is that he is married outside the covenant. Now, in fairness to Lot, at this point, the directives of the law have not been given, that God's people were not to marry Hittites and Hebites and Jebusites and Girgashites and whatever other rites. But he has evidently married a woman who is with him in Sodom. We don't know when they married. We don't know how they married. We don't know how they met. But this we do know, that he has a wife in Sodom. He has two daughters in Sodom. And when push comes to shove, because she loves her husband, because she respects her husband, she is heading out of Sodom as well. But she is following from behind. And from behind, as Lot and his two daughters are looking forward towards Zoar, she turns around, looks back, and gazes. Because while she is leaving Sodom, Sodom has not left her. And in that choice, Lot has demonstrated his need of being justified. Listen to the words of Jesus in Luke 17, 32. On that day... Let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Thirdly, he has reared unbelieving children. We know that he has two daughters. And although they leave Sodom with him, it is evident that they have been marked marred by their life in Sodom. They have imbibed the culture of the city, and according to verse 14 of chapter 19, they are about to marry natives of Sodom. So that brings us to the fourth step, as it were, in Lot coming to the recognition that learning about the gospel is not enough. He needs to embrace the gospel. And what is the critical factor Well, he has become sick of sin. We don't know at what point the decisions that Lot had made begin to catch up with him. But at some point, he came to the end of himself. Let me say that. That if you have learned the gospel, but are yet to embrace the gospel, this may well be your problem. You know the gospel. You know the gospel far better than many people outside the church. And you can articulate the gospel, you just haven't embraced the gospel. And the reason you haven't embraced the gospel is because you've not felt your need of the gospel. And so Lot, not feeling his need of the gospel, has made decision after decision after decision in which he is at the center of his decision making. But the effects of these decisions have piled up And now he has become sick of sin. And somewhere in the background, he has learned, as Abraham learned, to believe the Lord, knowing that in the Lord's mercy, his faith is reckoned to him as his righteousness. Not because faith has an inherent value, but because faith rests upon the Lord. Well, what's the evidence that he's actually turned to the Lord? Well, Go back to chapter 18, and that incident in which Abraham is sitting there in the plains of Mamre, and these three visitors come to him, 
And we know the story, don't we? One is a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the other two are angels. And part of the evidence that the other two are angels is that when they go to Sodom, according to the geographical reckoning, they get to Sodom in twice the, half the speed that it would have taken a typical human being. And also part of the evidence that these are angels is that they were likely beautiful beings, which is why the men of Sodom were so interested in them. But when it is revealed to the friend of God, the judgment that is going to come upon Sodom and Gomorrah, what does Abram do? Abram begins to call upon the Lord. And what does he say? Lord, the judge of all the earth will do right. But supposing, if I may for a moment, supposing that there are 50 in the city, 50 who are righteous, what will you do? Or supposing there are 45, supposing there are 40, what about 30, what about 20, what about 10? You see what is going on in Abram's mind. Somewhere behind the scenes, not only has Lot turned to the Lord, but Abraham now knows that Lot has come to the Lord, and he is the first one actually, although indirectly, to describe Lot as righteous. Another evidence is the disposition of Lot as we come to verse 1. He's sitting in the gate. This man who parked his tent as far as Sodom, and then through the gravitational pull of sin, was found in Sodom and returns to Sodom, is now edging back to the borders of the city. He is sitting in the gate. He is sick and tired of the place. Listen to the hymn of Robert Murray McShane, who died in 1843. When free grace awoke me, by light from on high, then legal fear shook me. I trembled to die. No refuge, no safety in self could I see. Jehovah Sidkenu, my Savior, must be. What is Jehovah Sidkenu? It's the Hebrew for the Lord, my righteousness. And you see, this is what is happening behind the scenes. It's uh, very important for us to realize in the New Testament that what matters most of all is not the actual testimony of how a person came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, but the state of convertedness. We don't know how Lot came to trust in the Lord, but this is important that he is showing the signs that he is actually doing so. He believed the Lord for his justification. And therefore, the Apostle Peter, thinking back upon Lot for all the chaotic mess of his life, can pronounce this man righteous because the righteousness of the Lord has been reckoned to his account. Brothers and sisters, this is very important for us to remember when we seek to reach out to others in the community. And such is the divide now between the church and society. If God grants us success as a church in reaching a community, we are going to see people coming in with all sorts of backgrounds, all sorts of issues. And it is highly important for us to understand that if a person has rested entirely upon the Lord Jesus Christ for their salvation... They are as justified as the person 
who has grown up in the church, trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, they can't remember when. They've never heard of half the sins that people are involved in, but they are equally justified, whether they seem externally to be squeaky clean or not. If they have put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, they are justified. And none of us tonight is more justified than another if we have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lot, he's made a lot of poor decisions. But he is believing in the Lord for his justification, and thereby the Apostle Peter can say three times, righteous Lot, that righteous man, righteous Lot. Well, the second point this evening then is that Lot believed the Lord for his sanctification. You see, he's come to faith. But there's a lot of issues in his life which need to be dealt with. He is trapped in the decisions that he has made before he came to faith in the Lord. He has reaped the fruit of his sin with temporal judgments on his life. Now he must look to the Lord to use New Testament terms for his sanctification, to be made holy. He has in the Lord a perfect righteousness. But in terms of his own pursuit of righteousness, he is a beginner. He has a long long road to go. And so he needs this righteousness, imparted righteousness, not to top up imputed righteousness, that perfect righteousness given to him by the Lord, but he needs to pursue a life of righteousness because that is pleasing to God. And so as we make our way through Genesis 19, very quickly, we see five evidences of his need of sanctification. The first evidence is touching upon what we've already discussed. He is tormented, verses 1 through 3. When Lot saw them, verse 2, verse 1 going into verse 2, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, no, we will spend the night in the town square. The test as to whether he would come under judgment himself was hospitality. And just as Abraham had received the pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ on the one hand and the two angels on the other, so Lot now extends hospitality to these two angels that come into the city. But what does the Apostle Peter say? He says he is greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. And so he is sitting in the gate. He's sitting in the gateway of Sodom. And he is greatly distressed in two ways. He's greatly distressed from without. He has become nauseated by the sin of the city. And he is also greatly distressed within because he is experiencing what many a believer has experienced in the centuries since. He's probably sitting there thinking, if only I had come to faith in the Lord before I made these decisions. He's probably thinking back saying, why did I ever simply think in material terms about parking my tent as far as Sodom? Why did I think that I would not end up in Sodom? 
He may even be thinking, why did I manage to marry a woman of the city and not a godly woman? Why did I end up with children that I cannot control? Why, why, why did I not believe in the Lord before I did? He is tormented, certainly from without, but I dare to suggest he's also tormented from within. God uses that torment. He uses the torment to prize him free from the world. He is preparing us through the torment that we go through for the glory of another world. Dear believer, the sense of nausea that we feel as we switch on the news, as we watch all that's going on around us, as we walk through the cities of the land, and we see the sin brazen publicly, it is part of the way in which God is sanctifying us. And as we look back upon our own lives, we see the decisions which we made out of the flesh, not out of the spirit, and we are tormented by them. It is part of the way in which God humbles us, part of the way in which he sanctifies us, part of the way in which he instills within us a hatred of sin and a love of his righteousness. And so, evidence one, that Lot needs sanctification, he's tormented. Evidence two, he's trapped, verses 4 through 11. You get some sense that Lot is mightily embarrassed about the circumstances in which he finds himself. And he has some sense that these two angels are from God. There's something different about them. And so he says, don't, don't stay in public. Come, come under my roof. Come under my roof. And so they come under his roof, but word is out. And the men of Sodom, even the men of Sodom, come to his door. Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out that we may know them. And Lot does this heinous thing, which we can readily sit in judgment upon him for doing. He says, here are my daughters. Do with my daughters whatever you want, but don't touch these men. You see, here's a man who is trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, to use our terminology, but he has come to Christ in the midst of a pickle. And he is trying to find himself out of this entrapment in sin. And so he's left with these two weighty alternatives. Do I hand over these men who are different and probably from God and grieve the very God who reckons me righteous in his sight? Or do I hand over my daughters and say, please take my daughters? And some of us have come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ like that. We are so thankful to be saved, but we don't know what to do with our earthly circumstances. How can I get out of the pickle the mess that my pre-conversion decisions have made? And so we try and work it out. And this is the beauty of what the Apostle Peter says. That God is able to rescue his people out of their trials. And so, what do the angels do? Stand back, Lot. They smite the men with blindness. Because this man is so trapped in the life that he chose for himself that he cannot find a way out of it. And they have to step in. They have to intervene. Evidence number three, that he needs sanctification. 
He's tested, verses 12 through 17. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of the place, for we are about to destroy this place because of the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord. And the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So as the story goes on, Lot goes out. He speaks to his sons-in-law. They have no respect for him. They think he's mocking and so he's jesting and so they disregard what he has to say. Lot remains in his home overnight. You can only imagine the conversation with his wife about what's going to happen the next day. And then he gets up the next day and they direct him to take his wife, to take his two daughters. The sons-in-law have made their mind up. They are staying. But here's the remarkable thing. Lot lingers. He lingers. Now, some might think that this is a parallel of conversion, that we don't really want to be saved, and so we linger, and so God sends his messengers. He picks us up. They pick us up. They put us in the place of safety, and we are converted. That's not how conversion works. Conversion works when God, in the day of his power, takes hold of somebody who by nature does not want to be saved, and he changes our mind, changes our hearts, so that we want to be saved, so that we call upon the name of the Lord, so that we desire to be in Christ. So what is happening here is not Lot coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, but it's Lot waking up to the fact that now he belongs to the Lord. But somebody who belongs to the Lord does not belong in Sodom. And so this is a crunch moment for Lot. Oh, he wants righteousness from the Lord. But does he want to live as if he is the Lord's? And so what do the angels do? They take him. They put him outside the city. And they say, that's the way to safety. You know, if you're a new Christian, God sometimes has to do that for us too. To bring us to the point that we are utterly surrendered to the Lord. That not only are we prepared to leave Sodom, but we desire Sodom to leave us. And haven't you found that to be the case? Oh, it's so easy, isn't it, to accept Jesus as Savior. But are we as ready to receive him as Lord of the details of our lives? Are we as ready to live out this life of gratitude and obedience to the lifestyle that he wants of us and not the lifestyle that we have chosen for ourselves? And so he is tested, but he passes the test. So the question comes to us tonight is, will we leave the world behind without looking back? God not only wants to save us through a Savior, but He wants to restore order to our lives. He wants to give our lives a purpose. He wants to give our lives a usefulness. And He wants our lives to be under the wonderful umbrella of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Evidence number four, that He needs to be sanctified. He's timid, verses 18 through 22. 
And Lot said to them, O no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life, but I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me, and I die. Behold, the city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city in which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. You say, well, how do we understand that? Well, you see, here's a man who's been living in Sodom. And what is not told you on the news, what is not told you in the films, what is not told you in the novels, is that when you are living, tantamount to living in Sodom, there is a massive amount of insecurity. Because the world as we know it is a place that's under judgment. And people are living liable to the judgment of God coming upon them. Now, Lot has been in that context. And so he is concerned that as he leaves Sodom, the judgment of God will come upon him before he's got to safety. And so he calls upon the angels, can I not go to Zoar? It's a little city. Because God is merciful to his people and accommodates to our weakness, Lot isn't able to go to the city. But we need to say that fear is not a virtue. Faith is the virtue. And so when we undergo the work of sanctification, we find that one of the things that ebbs bit by bit is fear, and we begin to live a life of faith. Listen to the author of Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 15, that Christ has come to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. The fifth evidence that he's in need of sanctification and probably the most astonishing is that he's tempted. Now, there's nothing wrong with being tempted. There's no sin in the temptation itself. But the events that close out Lot's place in the narrative are truly alarming. He's been given all he asked for. He escapes to Zoar, and on arriving there, the judgment falls. Says Peter, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials, to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And so Lot's road to final sanctification is a long one. He doesn't have his household under control, and nor does he have his appetites under control either. You can read the portion again for yourself. And so here's the conflict. The conflict between his life on the one hand and his legacy on the other. The fact that Peter calls him righteous and speaks of the Lord's rescue suggests that he pursued righteousness throughout the remainder of his days, notwithstanding this dire event. But by falling into the temptation and by fathering two sons, which also happened to be his grandsons, Moab and Ben-Ami, in the years to come, there's trouble in Israel because of the Moabites and the Ammonites. This is the legacy of Lot, you see. What happens? Well, you find in Numbers 25 that Moab led Israel to Baal worship. 
Together the Moabites and the Ammonites hired Balaam to curse Israel in Deuteronomy 23. You can also read Psalm 83 of the way in which the psalmist speaks of the Moabites and the Ammonites as the Lord's enemies. And so we leave off Lot. He's a work in progress, very early days. And this is us too, isn't it? We are works in progress. God has begun a good work in us. And we believe the Lord for our justification, but we trust him also for our sanctification. Those whom God justifies, he sanctifies. But we all leave off this life in the midst of our sanctification. What does Paul say? That God who has begun a good work in us goes on to complete it. And this is the intriguing thing. Not until the day that we die, but until the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. And some of the theologians have ruminated upon the possibility that even after we die, the sanctification process goes on until the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't want to give an opinion about that. Well, my point is this. We can all sit in judgment upon Lot. But the wonderful testimony of Scripture and something which ought truly to hearten us as the Lord's people tonight is that when Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, speaks of Lot, he doesn't speak about his sin. He speaks about what the Lord had done. And doesn't that give you confidence to appear before the throne of God at the end of your life? And here we are, many of us in our middle and later years, and one of the characteristics of the middle years of our lives, the latter years of our lives, is that we wake up in the middle of the night, we don't sleep like babies as we did when we were younger, and we recourse the whole of our lives. And for years on end, we think about the decisions that we've made and how stupid we were, how ignorant we were, how sinful we were, and what on earth were we thinking? And we transfer that to the day in which we appear before God. And we say, how on earth can God ever pronounce me Righteous. Isn't this a wonderful encouragement? Righteous Lot. That righteous man. And so I want to encourage you as I would encourage myself that the moment we put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we know a category transition. We are no longer sinners. We are saints. We are righteous. And you read the Psalms, how often the psalmist speaks of himself or God's people as righteous. And this is the gospel confidence that we must have. That yes, as a righteous person in Jesus Christ, I still sin. But it's not the category in which I am found. And so when I stand before God, and when you stand before God, we're either in the one category or the other. We're either righteous or we're sinners. 
righteous people reckon to our account the perfect righteousness of Christ and thereby, as a response to gratitude, seeking to live righteous lives, however poorly. Or we're in the category of sinner. And there's no hobbling between one and the other. There's no one foot in one category, one foot in the other. Either we are righteous or we are sinners. There are many things peripheral in the Christian life, but this is not one of them. And so let me say in closing, as we leave off the life of Lot, five brief comments. First, the importance of trusting in Christ quickly. Young people, don't put off trusting in Christ. If I was your parent, the biggest concern I would have for you is that you make decisions early in your lives that shape and define your living for the rest of your lives. And as Lot knew in his head, but should have known experientially, there was blessing, there was protection to be in relationship with Abram's God. Trust in Christ quickly. Trust in Christ wholly. Forsake any hint of a thought that you can contribute to your salvation. It's like this. I don't know young people or even older people. When you look for a file on your computer and you search for the file and the dreaded words come up, no file found. And so it is for the person in life. We search our lives for that righteousness which is acceptable to God, and the alarming words come up, no righteousness found. And it is for that reason then that we trust wholly in Christ. Because having his perfect righteousness, we do not need another. Thirdly, trust in Christ boldly. Let's not live as close to the world as we can. The world lives in ignorance of Christ's return. Listen to Paul's or Peter's Words in 1 Peter 4:18. If the righteous scarcely be saved, what shall the sinner and the ungodly do? Don't profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Come out to the elders' meeting, having professed your faith, and then say, now how can I live as close to Sodom as possible and not get my hands burned? Live for Christ boldly. Don't wait for God in his providence to take you by the hand and dump you outside of Sodom. Leave the place. Trust in Christ constantly. You see, we don't know how Lot's life ended. But this we do know as we leave off this man. That he had such a long road of sanctification to go. And just as he had believed in the Lord for justification. So he has to believe in the Lord until his last days for his sanctification. And the same is true for you and for me.
And then finally, trust in Christ selflessly. Typically, when you consider these chapters, Abraham is to the fore and Lot is to the background. We have considered Lot to the fore, but Abraham has been in the background. And what do we glean from Abraham? That even when Lot goes off to Sodom, he yearns for Lot. He goes and gets him back after he's captured. And when he goes back to live in Sodom, oh foolish Lot... It is Abraham who is standing before the Lord, pleading for Lot. If there be 50, 45, 40, 30, 20, 10 righteous in the city, please do not destroy the city on their account. And what we need are not older believers to sit in judgment upon younger believers, but we need believers like Abraham, to plead for those who are yet outside of Christ and to plead for those who are in Christ but are just getting underway along the road of sanctification. May God bless these thoughts. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we acknowledge There are many weighty truths here in your word, and we pray that you would bless them to us according to where we are at. Pray for any who are outside of Christ that they would run to you through him without delay, that you would keep them from the ensnarements of sin and grant them lives of usefulness that bring honor and glory to you. And Father, we pray for any who have put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ but are working out their salvation with fear and trembling in the midst of many complex circumstances arising from decisions they made before they were converted. Lord, grant them grace. You are able to rescue the godly. Do that, we pray. And so, Father, give us hearts to intercede for the lost. Give us hearts to intercede for those who are trying to have one foot in the church and one foot in the world. And we'll give you the glory as you fulfill your purposes for your people. For you do not let your people down. You do not let them go. No one can pluck them out of your hand. And we are glad. Thank you, Father, for your love. Thank you for your grace. Help us to live in the light of it. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.